This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 45. Coming up on Space Time, the frozen, windswept dunes of the distant world of Pluto, an asteroid on a collision course with Earth airbursts over Africa, and Spaceship 2's latest test flight. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Scientists have confirmed the existence of dunes on Pluto. The findings reported in the journal Science are based on images of a vast ice plane called Sputnik Planetia, taken by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft during its close flyby of the distant dwarf planet back in July 2015. The discovery means that despite being some 30 to 40 times further away from the Sun than the Earth, and with surface temperatures down to minus 230 degrees Celsius, it turns out Pluto still has Earth-like characteristics. However, unlike the sand dunes found on Earth, or those found on Mars, and even those found on Saturn's moon Titan, Pluto's dunes are likely composed of grains of sublimated methane ices. The dunes form a collection of some 357 pale ridges and six darker wind streaks, located over a 75-kilometre-wide area along the western rim of the Sputnik Planetier Ice Plain and pushing up against the large adjacent mountain range. The ridges run parallel with the mountain range, but further east they shift their orientation, becoming more spread out, a pattern also seen in the wind streaks. The study's lead author, Matt Telfer from the University of Plymouth, says the location of the ridges and their distribution patterns all suggest they were probably generated by winds. The discovery is surprising, as Pluto's tenuous atmosphere has a surface pressure some 100,000 times lower than Earth's. Too low, it was thought, to mobilise sediment. However, computer modelling by Telfer and colleagues confirmed that the winds could create these dunes once the sediments became airborne. But sublimation was required first in order to lift the grains from the planet's surface into its rarefied atmosphere. The process would involve the sun heating the surface ices enough for the gas to be released into the atmosphere, lofting particles into the air would they condense and solidify into tiny sand-sized grains. And it would be these grains which are then transported by Pluto's moderate winds, which can reach 30 to 40 kilometres an hour and the border of the ice plain with the mountain range provide the perfect location for regular surface dune formations to appear. As for the likely source of the dune grains, well, it's probably methane ice blown from nearby mountains, although nitrogen ice can't be ruled out. The authors also suggest that the undisturbed morphology of the dunes and their relationship with the underlying glacial ice suggest the features are fairly young, most likely having been formed within the last 500,000 years and possibly even much more recently. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. An asteroid first detected on Saturday near the orbit of the Moon has exploded just a day later in a spectacular airburst over southern Africa. The two-metre-wide space rock, catalogued as 2018 LA, was found to be on a collision course with the Earth with the impact calculated to be just hours away. The boulder-sized asteroid was first detected by NASA's Catalina Sky Survey Telescope near Tucson, which is operated by the University of Arizona. Although there wasn't enough tracking data to make precise predictions ahead of time, a range of possible locations were quickly calculated, stretching from southern Africa, across the Indian Ocean and onto New Guinea. 
Reports of a bright fireball above Botswana hours later matched up with the predicted flight path of the asteroid. The meteor entered Earth's atmosphere at a speed of 17 kilometres per second, disintegrating into a spectacular fireball as it hit thicker atmosphere several kilometres above the ground. Asteroid 2018 LA was first detected as nothing more than a streak in a series of time exposure images taken by the Catalina Telescope. As is the case for all asteroid hunting projects, the data were quickly sent to the Minor Planet Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which then calculated a preliminary flight path indicating the possibility of an Earth impact. The data were then forwarded to the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, where the automated scout system also found a high probability that the asteroid was on an impacting course. Alerts were then sent out to astronomers to obtain further observations, and the Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. was notified. However, since the asteroid was determined to be fairly small and therefore reasonably harmless, no further impact alerts were issued by NASA. Instead, the event was treated as a real-world exercise, allowing NASA and emergency services to test their capabilities in preparation for a future bigger, more deadly impactor. The Atlas Asteroid Survey obtained two additional observations just hours before the impact, and these were used by a scout to confirm that an Earth impact would occur and also narrow down ground zero to southern Africa. Then infrasound data clearly detected what sounded like an impact from one of its listening stations deployed as part of the international monitoring system of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and the signal was consistent with an airburst over Botswana. The discovery of asteroid 2018 LA is only the third time that an asteroid moving through space was discovered prior to it impacting Earth, and only the second time that a precise impact location was predicted well ahead of the event. The first event of this kind was the impact of asteroid 2008 TC3, which lit up the pre-dawn skies above northern Sudan on October 7, 2008. TC3 was a much larger asteroid, about 4 metres wide, and it was discovered some 19 hours before impact, allowing for a large number of follow-up observations and consequently a very precise trajectory to be calculated. The second predicted impact event was for asteroid 2014 AA. It was discovered only a few hours before its impact on January 1st, 2014. The asteroid eventually slammed into the Atlantic Ocean, leaving far too little time for any follow-up observations. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. Virgin Galactic has carried out a second-powered test flight of its VSS Unity spaceplane in the skies above California's Mojave Desert. After being carried to an altitude of 15,000 metres or 50,000 feet by its White Knight 2 mothership, the VMS Eve, Unity was released, dropping sharply before igniting its hybrid rocket engine. The hybrid engine is designed to burn thermoplastic polyamide nylon fuel with a nitrous oxide oxidizer for 70 seconds, accelerating the spacecraft through the sound barrier to a speed of Mach 3.27 or 4,000 kilometers per hour and an altitude of over 100 kilometers or 328,000 feet. But for this second powered test flight, the rocket motor was burned for a planned 31 seconds propelling Unity to a speed of Mach 1.9 and an altitude of 34,900 metres or 114,500 feet. The flight was designed to test the spacecraft's supersonic handling characteristics and flight control system performance. This involved Unity flying in a configuration similar to what would be expected during future normal commercial passenger operations. 
After reaching its apogee, the spacecraft was then reconfigured for re-entry, with the tail booms feathered vertically as the spacecraft dropped in altitude. As it moved back into thicker atmosphere, Unity's tail booms were moved back into the horizontal position as the space plane glided back to a perfect runway landing back at the Mojave Air and Spaceport. This latest test flight comes just 54 days after Unity's first powered flight back on April the 5th, when the spacecraft was taken to Mach 1.87 and an altitude of 25,700 metres or 84,271 feet. Two or three more atmospheric test flights are planned before Unity attempts a space apogee. That'll mean passing above 100 kilometres or 328,000 feet, the official start of space. Virgin says it's already taken reservations for more than 700 space tourists, each paying some $250,000 for their journey to the edge of space. The test has moved Virgin Galactic closer to eventually flying-paying passengers on suborbital space tourism trips. The project has suffered a string of delays, including a fatal 2014 mid-air incident in which the tail booms were accidentally moved to the feathered position during ascent, causing the spacecraft VSS Enterprise to break up in mid-air, killing one pilot and injuring the other. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A new issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazines hit the newsstands, looking at Jupiter in opposition and explaining how astronomers determine cosmic distances across space. Joining us now with all the details is the magazine's editor, Jonathan Nally. G'day, Stuart. Yeah, well, in this month's issue of Australian Sky and Telescope, we take a look at how astronomers work out how big space is and how far things are in space, distances in space, all the sort of measurement stuff that has given us this grand view of where we are in the universe. So over hundreds of years, astronomers have worked out various methods to determine distances to nearby stars first and then more distant stars and then nearby galaxies and then even more distant galaxies and even all the way to the edge of the observable universe. One of the earliest ways they devised is to use a thing called parallax, which is just basically triangulation. What you do is you measure the position of a star in relation to background stars. The background stars essentially don't change their position because they're so far away. Then six months later, you measure that position of that star again. By six months, the Earth has moved from one side of its orbit all the way over to the other side of the orbit. And we know that distance between those two points all the way across the Earth's orbit. So you then measure the star again and you see how the angle has changed. So if you know one distance and two angles in a triangle, you can work out the other distances. So that's, that's basically how they work it out. Just do some easy maths. And there you've got it. You can do the same thing with your thumb in front of your nose, in fact, by putting a thumb out at arm's length and closing one eye and then looking at the same thumb with the other eye, you can see how it moves in relation to background objects. That's right. And it works also in, um, uh, on a car dashboard if you've got a speedometer with a, with a, uh, you know, a little a needle that moves. Uh, if you're the driver and you're looking straight at it, you'll see an accurate measurement or reading of your speed. But the passenger sitting beside you is looking at an angle and they will see that needle line up with a different number. Slow down, George. So slow down, exactly, or speed up, whatever it is. So that's one way of doing it, uh, parallax, and that only works out to a certain distance there before the angles become too fine and you don't, you don't get any more value out of it. So, yeah, the next way they worked out is using a special kind of star called a Cepheid variable, and a Cepheid variable star is one that changes its light output in a very predictable way. If you can spot one of these stars, say, in another galaxy, you can work out its distance to that star in the galaxy by how dim its light is compared to how bright you know it should be. Okay, pretty easy to do if you can spot those stars. Now, the famous Edwin Hubble used this technique way back in 1925 to estimate 
that the equally famous Andromeda galaxy, or the Andromeda Nebula, as it was known back then, is 1.5 million light years away. And it was that measurement that helped show that Andromeda had to be way, way out beyond our galaxy because many astronomers have been arguing that these nebula, thing you can see, nebula things you can see in the sky are actually inside our galaxy. But he showed that this one was actually way outside. Now, using our modern instruments, we know that Andromeda is actually much further away. It's two and a half million light years. Uh, getting closer every day. Years, uh, getting closer every day. It's moving towards us, but about a million light years more than Hubble had estimated. But, you know, it's still pretty good going for the methods and techniques and technology he had at the time. And there are other techniques also that astronomers use to measure even further out into space, and we go into more details about those in the article in the magazine. And these are things like Type 1A supernovae. That's right, Type 1A supernovae. Again, a bit, bit like the Cepheid variable for stars in that we know how bright they should be. So by seeing how dim they are, we can work out how far away they are because, you know, light, lights, the strength of light sort of drops off as you go at out distances at a, at a sort of known rate. It's a bit like looking at streetlights down a road. You know, the ones closest to you are a lot brighter than the ones further away, even though they each have the same intrinsic brightness. That's right. And if you're out driving the country road at night and see some headlights coming towards you, you can tell whether it's a long way away or much closer because headlights are pretty much all the same brightness. The same sort of thing. And the Type 1 supernovae, of course, are the things that have enabled us to measure distances to really far things in the universe, and that has worked in into the equations of the expansion of the universe, which has given us the age of the universe, which has also given us the size of the universe. So it's all pretty clever stuff. We talk about redshifting a lot on the show, and I mm. take it the article covers redshifting as well. That's quite correct, yeah. That's, that's the ultimate in determining distances to things that are way, way, way out in the universe. There are also things like baryonic acoustic oscillations, which show you densities of matter across cosmic distances, like pressure waves, like sound waves from the Big Bang. I think I've been to see my doctor about some baryonic <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what he called it, but I don't want to explain anymore. It's a bit of... Just cough. Yeah, yeah just bend over and cough. <laughs> exactly right. Anyway, what, what else is in the magazine? Uh, well, this month, Jupiter's time to shine at the moment. Jupiter, giant planet, big, biggest planet in the solar system, it's just gone past what we call opposition. Opposition is where a planet, one of the outer planets, is on the opposite side of the Earth to the sun. That makes any sense. So the sun's in one direction and the planet is in exactly the opposite direction. The practical upshot of that for people here on Earth, for us here down here on Earth wanting to look at the planets, is that if they're in opposite directions, then you can imagine then as the sun's going down in the west, the planet must be rising in the east. And the beauty of that is that it gives you all night to look at it. Because as the sun goes down, the planet comes up, you've got 12 hours roughly, depending on your time zone and latitude and what season of the year it is, that kind of thing, how many hours of daylight and darkness you've got. you basically got all that time to look at the planet. And yeah, it's a great time. So if you, if you get a, look, a chance to look through a telescope, have a look at Jupiter. Even go along to a, a local observatory or public observatory, get a look through one of their telescopes uh, at Jupiter. You'll be able to see its cloud patterns, its moons, and its famous great red spot, of course. And the great red spot being a a huge oval-shaped cyclone or hurricane in, in Jupiter's atmosphere. It's been there for centuries, ever since people have been able to you know, get a good look at Jupiter, they've seen this great red spot there. And it's probably been there for obviously much longer than that as well. Interestingly, it's, it's slowly changing. You know, 100 years ago, it was two and a half times longer than it is now, the great red spot. So it's shrunk quite a bit. We still really don't know what's going on inside it, what drives it, what the energy source is and why it is, the colour it is. But it's a pretty amazing thing when you, when you get a look through a telescope and you see Jupiter and you see that great red spot and you think, 
you could fit the entire Earth into that, probably twice over. It's really remarkable. Just on the subject of oppositions, we've got Jupiter opposition this month. Next, we have Saturn at opposition. Same deal, so you'll be able to view it all night long. Really, really good views. Look through a telescope. And July, we've got Mars, of course. And this opposition to Mars is going to be the best one we've had for about 15 years because not only is it in the right direction opposite the Sun, but it's also going to be at its closest point to the Sun and therefore sort of its closest point to us. They don't exactly line up the opposition date and the closest point date, but they're pretty close. So that's going to be really, really good. You're going to hear lots and lots of stuff about Mars in the news in July. And of course, that's also why we tend to launch rockets to Mars uh, every two years at about the time of opposition or around that time so that they have the shortest distance to travel between the two planets. That's right. I think it's every 28 months. Mm. Just, just over two years. If you want to understand why they do that, why they launch spacecraft to planets at certain times, just imagine a track and field event when you've, when you've got that... Um, relay race with the batons you know and the person has to run out from the side with the baton uh, and give it to the next person or, or vice versa whatever they do with the baton but they've got to time it just right if the person runs out from the side too early well then they miss if they run out too late well they miss so you've just got to time it just right and go at the right speed so you rendezvous when you're supposed to and that's the same thing with the missions to the planets look they can they can send spacecraft at any time it's just the most efficient way of doing it because you can you can launch and let your spacecraft just coast all the way and get there in the sort of minimum time, minimum fuel, minimum effort. That's Jonathan Alley, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Intermittent fasting diets, such as the well-known 5-2 diet, might work for weight loss, but new research suggests they may actually damage the pancreas and affect insulin production, which could lead to diabetes. The research, presented at the European Society for Endocrinology's annual meeting in Spain, looked at the effects of fasting every other day over a three-month period. The study found that while there was overall weight loss, the amount of tummy fat actually increased. The diets also damage the cells of the pancreas that release insulin, increased levels of free radicals, and generated markers of insulin resistance, an early warning sign of heading towards diabetes. Scientists have found a new lineage of microbes living in Yellowstone National Park's thermal hot springs. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Microbiology, sheds new light on the origins of life, the evolution of archaea, and the importance of iron in the early development of life. The discovery of archaea lineages are critical to science's understanding of life and the evolutionary history of Earth. The geochemically diverse thermal environments of Yellowstone provide unprecedented opportunities for studying archaea in habitats that may well represent analogues of early Earth. Archaea are one of the leading domains of life, the other two being bacteria and eukaryotes. Like bacteria, archaea are single-celled organisms while the eukaryote domain contains more complex organisms, including fungi, plant and animal kingdoms. The new archaeal lineage has been named Mars Archaeota after the red planet Mars, because these organisms thrive in habitats containing iron oxides. The authors discovered two main lineage subgroups that are thriving throughout Yellowstone in the hot acidic waters where iron oxide is the main mineral. One of the subgroups is living in water above 50 degrees Celsius, while the others living in waters above 60 to 80 degrees. And this water is about as acidic as grapefruit juice. Their microbial mats are red because of the iron oxide. The Mars archaeota are living fairly deep in the microbial mats, but they still require low levels of oxygen. 
The subgroups are so abundant that together they account for as much as half of all the organisms living in a single microbial mat. In the biggest study of its kind, researchers have found a link between a disturbed body clock and increased risk of depression, bipolar disorder and overall adverse well-being. Your body clock, or circadian rhythm, is the natural way your body regulates your sleep-wake cycle. The new research, reported in the Lancet Medical Journal, looked at sleep disturbances in some 91,000 people. Researchers suggest that many sufferers may benefit from treatments that target body clock issues. Apple's launching new augmented reality tools, allowing iPhone users to see virtual structures superimposed on their surroundings. The company says their new two-player system will allow users to restrict the amount of personal data being sent to its servers. Because of privacy concerns, Apple's two-player system is designed to operate phone-to-phone rather than Google's AR system, which requires players to firstly scan their environment and then store all that data in the cloud. Augmented reality has sparked privacy concerns because it allows people to routinely scan their homes and other personal spaces. A new study claims women are more attracted to men with longer legs in relation to their body height. Interestingly, researchers found that while longer legs make men more attractive to women, arm length doesn't have the same effect. Unless, I guess, you're an orangutan. But if you're a dude with average length legs, don't despair, as average leg to body length ratios were also quite attractive to the ladies. Researchers say this might be because long legs indicate socioeconomic privilege, while an average ratio might indicate good health. The findings are reported in the Journal of the Royal Society, Open Science. The scientific method involves observation, hypothesis, experimentation, analysis and conclusion. Science is all about critical thinking. It's a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it. Test the claim. See if it's factual and stands up, or if it's just a great steaming pile of woo. That's what scepticism and evidence-based science is all about. It's a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. Superstition is a belief that positive, negative or improbable events aren't random occurrences, but can be encouraged or warded off through specific actions. Different cultures and religions have all developed their own folklores, legends and superstitions. The origins of superstition arise out of ignorance or misunderstanding of science or causality, a belief in fate or magic, or a fear of the unknown and a need to bring order and sense into the world. So undertaking specific superstitious practices are meant to be able to change the outcome of specific events. Aran Segev, President of Australian Skeptics, joins us now to provide a skeptic's guide to superstitions. Superstition is an irrational belief in supernatural influences, especially as leading to good or bad luck. For example, in, when it relates to bad luck, uh, walking under a ladder, seeing or touching or being in the presence of a broken mirror, the number 13, seeing a black cat. Groucho Marx said it best. He says, if you see a black cat crossing your path, it's a clear sign the animal's going somewhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. A good luck, for example, is the number eight, considered uh, lucky in uh, Chinese culture. And there are also protective uh, superstitions. For example, a lot of people who are superstitious believe in the, in the evil eye. And I it's never bad worked luck out what the evil eye more, was. Well, it's basically a pervasive bad luck. So basically, it's bad luck that's not just happening right now, but it could happen to you. 
and therefore you need something protective. So, for example, carrying around a rabbit's foot will protect you against bad luck, against the evil eye. Knocking on wood protects you against uh, bad luck and against, uh, you know, against the evil eye. By the way, the evil eye comes from the idea that somebody looks at you in a certain way and that could lead to bad luck. But of course, if somebody looks at you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, it could be more than just luck that will be bad. Superstitions, of course, are, come from all kinds of different cultures, but uh, most religions develop superstitions that are only tangentially related to the main teachings of the religion, though they sometimes become mainstream. A good example of that is Catholic relics. They are seen to confer luck or healing to the believer or to anyone who touches or possesses them. So, you know, examples of those would be weeping statues or people Body crossing parts. themselves. Oh. Yeah, I know. There's all kinds of things that I don't, I could put the saints into the realm of superstition, I suppose, and some people would put all of religion into superstition. I won't argue with that. I think that's there's probably a lot of truth to that, but I'd rather stick to the more traditional definition of superstition. But even things like crossing them, you know, for a person to cross themselves to ward off bad luck, you know, you see something scary across yourself and that's supposed to somehow ward off bad luck. That's, of course, a superstition. Superstitions are very common in sports. Uh, some common types of sports superstitions are wearing the same garment to all games. Steve Waugh, Australian uh, cricket captain uh, in the past, for example, he had a red rag in his pocket for much of his career after he used a red rag to wipe off his sweat in a particularly successful spell. Uh, stepping onto the field of play in the same manner, for example, by always using the left foot first. Is that also a typical superstition in sports? Certain movements or sequences are very common as well. Anybody who's ever seen Rafael Nadal play knows that he's famous for his elaborate ritual of touching his hair and pulling on his underwear before serves. So it's something that's very repetitive. I think sports is probably the place where superstitions make most sense in a weird sort of way. When somebody is really invested in sports, they want to become really good and they put a lot of effort into sports. They train very often for years. One of the things they try to do is to get to the stage where things are repeatable. Everything you do, you've done a hundred times before and you repeat what works and you discard what doesn't. So they have rituals, for example, around how they look like if we talk about tennis, for example, about how they put their feet, what, you know, how they raise their arm, all kinds of things like that. So it's an extension of muscle memory as well then. Absolutely. That's exactly the same thing. There's no strong research around it, but it makes most sense that in a place where you actually have to do things repeatedly over and over and do when whatever something works, you repeat it exactly the same as you did before. It makes sense that you would become more superstitious. And an interesting anecdote I found around it is again, it's not, not particularly strong, but, but it's, it's been shown many times that sports people when they retire they discard their superstitions they actually say it's nonsense it doesn't mean anything there's a great one concerning the the russian space agency roscosmos and its predecessors which involves urinating on the side of a bus before boarding a soyuz <laughs> I, I haven't heard of that one but i wish i had <laughs> yeah that's a classic russian one <laughs> that is probably from because you know when the when the cosmodrome uh, was first built there were probably no no good toilets anywhere around what there so they had there are now? The side of, yeah probably but uh, if i it can go back to sports. You know, another another typical sports superstition is uh, the, the belief that certain scores have special meaning. In cricket, for example, the numbers 87 and 11 are considered to be uh, bad luck. The thing is, superstitions are clearly quite ubiquitous, but there's an interesting question around why that would be the case. I haven't found a good explanation to it. Probably the most likely explanation is that they provide a sense of control. That's Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time, I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now.
You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 